0: program focused on the freedom that comes from being able to talk about death. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank. Today our topic is the five wishes. My guest is Reverend Karen Packard, a participant in the development of five wishes and recent president of Hospice of the Foothills. Welcome, Karen. Thank you very much, Lori. Well, Karen, um, first of all, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the five wishes is and and how you came to be involved
1: mm. you know i had a, a life story of taking care of several people through their illnesses and deaths and in a couple of the cases they were very young and it wasn't something you know when they come to the hospital room and tell you you do you have a will um who's your lawyer, (laughs) the only thing you thought about is, is your tennis racket in good shape, you know? And so I began in those years to care and want to gain understanding of end of life. And I just want to back
0: this up a little bit. You were working at a Long Beach uh, Memorial Hospital. Uh,
1: After the caregiving, I became an ordained clergy. And after that, a chaplain at Long Beach Memorial, the director of pastoral care there. And um, much of my focus happened to be, you know, one person can't focus on everything, happened to be on uh, how to educate and prepare people better for end of life. And out of that came the invitation from Paul Malley, at Aging with Dignity, to work on that project. So um, what exactly is the Five Wishes? The Five Wishes is an, is an actual advanced directive, but it's more than advanced directive. Um, they say that it, it has soul. That's one of the ways they talk about it. It was developed by John Tui, um, who decided, Jim Tui, excuse me, who spent 12 years with Mother Teresa as her lawyer. And in the course of that time, she really worked on him about doing something with his life that would make a difference in dignity for people as they were dying. So when he finished his 12 year term with her, he came back to the States and began fundraising and finding grants to develop a whole program for aging with dignity and the part that took off, um, I don't know if you heard of the Terry Schiavo case, I can't kind of remember, but perhaps you could remind
0: the listeners.
1: Yeah, it was back in Tallahassee, Florida, which happens to be where the offices of Aging with Dignity are. And she was a young woman in a persistent vegetative state, a Catholic um, and uh, a wife and also a um, daughter. And so the opinions of her mom and dad and the opinions of her husband were totally different. And the opinion of her Catholic priest was totally different. And they all wanted to keep her on. Um, she was some being fed with a feeding tube in a persistent vegetative state. And the only way that she could be allowed to die was to discontinue the feeding. And that went against, you know, it just people protested in the streets of Tallahassee. And out of that, people began to see the need for some directions. And this advanced directive has the basics. Who do you want to make decisions for you? And um, what do you want? But it also has um, the softer, things. You know, who do you want to have with you when you die? Do you want somebody to hold your hand? Do you want somebody to pray? Who don't you want to have with you? What do you want um, to happen in your funeral? You know, things that are ongoing that you can just keep writing in the margins. So hopefully when somebody completes the five wishes, and we'll talk a little more about some of the parameters of that, and a person has it in their hand, whether they know you or not, you've put enough of yourself on the document that that person can really make a good decision um, about what the direction should be for the end of your life. So
0: you mentioned advanced directives. Is this the same as an advanced directive?
1: It, it is. It, I have to be careful how I say this. It could, in effect, be your advanced directive with nothing else If people have already done you know the two page advanced directive document that you do with your lawyer, or you know your um, whoever you work with on those things. I basically say, as long as they agree, then you can staple it on as additional information. if the dates are wrong or if anything in them contradicts each other, then you have to make a decision between the two. So um, and we always go with the one that has the n- newest date, most current date. Mm-hmm. So it is an advanced directive. Um, up to you have to be 18 to do it. You know, we have a, a one for children, one for adolescents. But the actual five wishes is for people 18 years and above.
0: So, you know, it's called Five Wishes, which that name's very easy to remember. Um, But what are the actual five wishes. <laughs> and, I, and I do have it in front that's of me, Karen, good. so maybe
1: I'm laugh. laughing because she has it. Um, why don't we, because I'm, your listeners would really laugh if they knew where I'm sitting. I'm, I'm moving tomorrow and I'm sitting in a, an empty bar in the hotel where I'm staying. I have nothing <laughs> with me. So I, um, the first thing is who do you want to make decisions for you? That That's the first wish. And I won't get the words exactly right. And you can coach me, Lori. That, that's close um, enough yeah and it gives you three choices so which is a really good idea right because say you do this when you're 50 by the time you're 70 um the person you chose might be dead might be living in china you know my i don't know maybe you don't talk to them anymore so i you can update it as long as you update all of your copies so who do you want to make decisions for you and then um what you want those decisions to be. you know. So that right? would
0: be the medical treatment that you the, want or yeah. you don't want?
1: Right, right, all the medical things. And it goes through them in a way that y- where you're encouraged to write extra. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, do you want life support at end of life? Okay, life support being defined as something that would keep you alive if you, discontinued it. So it could even be an antibiotic, could be life support, okay? Oxygen could be life support. A ventilator, of course, could be life support. Um, kidney dialysis, you know? Then, um, if you have parameters around that, that you want to say, I'm remembering in writing in mind, I said, you could put me on the ventilator long enough for my family to get there. You know, even if um, I'm, you know, brain dead, keep me on the ventilator, which can't do very long in, in this state if somebody's actually brain dead. But if people are on their way, keep that ventilator in until all the family that wants to be is here. And then we'll take it out together. And of course, this is already discussed with my family. You you don't want to do this and not discuss it with your family because um, it's not easy, but it's necessary. So you can write those things. I love
0: that. I love that it it gives you that chance to respond and put the parameters around it rather than... The legal documents sometimes, to me, feel a little confining. It's like it's a yes, no answer, and it's hard to to decide, and I have more I
1: want to say about that or ask about that. So that is great. And you know how you and I were talking just a little bit ago? Nothing goes as planned, right? So if you have a document that's just boxes with Xs in it that you can't make personal for yourself, and the situation doesn't line up exactly the way the questions are written, if you've written some things, I'd really like you to call Dr. Riker and make sure that he agrees with the diagnosis. I, don't, that, I think that's on mine and Dr. Riker doesn't even practice medicine anymore, so I need to fix that. But it helps those people who are deciding. You would like them to think that that document is you. Oh, yeah, that's,
0: that's so lovely. That, that is great. Well, and the next question: um, How comfortable I want to be? So, yeah. what is that? That's
1: really a pain. That's a pain management question. There are some people, you know, snow me, put me under. You know, I don't want to even know what's going around. There are some people who say, "Give me the least you possibly can." I want to be really aware of who's around me and able to react. And there's, you know, different things in in between. Um, I think maybe in that one, too, it might even have, do I want to be in my home? I can't remember which one goes in two and which goes in three. But um, the parameters around your physical space and your comfort level, you know, I mean, you could write in there that you'd like your dog in the bed with you. I mean, if that's what makes you comfortable, that's what you ought to write. I have one well, of my friends who wanted it to be wrapped in an Afghan that I bought, that I made for her, and she wanted both dogs right by her. And that's exactly what she got.
0: And I do love, again, that freedom to make it your own authentic document Yeah, um, that's very personal and, and not medical and not legal. I mean, it is a legal document and it is for, to help with medical decisions,
1: but it doesn't. It doesn't feel constraining in the way you're describing it. You know, Laurie, one thing that I think should be said, um, you know, I had years of medical experience and years of taking care of people who were dying. So I understood what the parameters might be. If I'm doing this with someone who doesn't have the benefit of medical knowledge, I really think it's important that the person working with them does and because if you've never seen a discontinuation of life support, if you've never seen somebody on a ventilator, you you really don't understand what you're saying. So I really advise people to have someone with them who can really tell them the nuts and bolts of what goes on.
0: And is this when they're filling out the document or yes?
1: Yeah, when they're filling out the document.
0: And how would they go about finding that person, Karen? What would you recommend?
1: You know, from my point of view, we have a couple of people here at Hospice of the Foothills who will help. Um, you can also and um, go to a hospital. There there are social workers who are trained to do it. There are chaplains who are trained. Um, but I would start by calling Hospice of the Foothills and see who they could recommend to help you. Um Yeah, and you can get the documents online, you can download them, but hospice orders them, you know, as a public service to to give to people. And so within reason, I guess, you know, I don't know how many people listen to the podcast, but but we can always get more from Aging with Dignity because the the goal is to have as many people complete their documents uh, as they can and complete them when they're well not when you're at the last stages and everything is so difficult for you and the people around you.
0: Well, you're listening to Embracing the Journey on KVMR. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank, and my guest is Reverend Karen Packard, a participant in the development of the Five Wishes and recent president of the Hospice of the Foothills. And we're just going through the list of of questions of these or the wishes. And uh, the fourth wish is how do I want people to treat me? Yeah.
1: You know i this the touching place in this one for me is when we do the children's document you know because this really is um you know i want people to tell me the truth you know i don't want people to talk around me i want people to talk to talk to me um do you want prayer i mean it's really um insensitive for someone to assume that the person in the bed who's facing their last moments believes what you do and you know and that that's a really kind of heretical thing to do and so what do i want people to know about how i want them to be with me do i want a room full of people to come or do i want it to be quieter do i want music played if so what kind of music do i want played who do i want to be with me and please who do you keep (laughs) <laughs> out of my room.
0: <laughs> uh, golly. And in your experience as you've supported people in filling this out, have there been situations where people are very clear about people they don't want to be spending their last moments with?
1: Yeah. You have to make it, you have to be in the way that you teach them. You have to keep it light. You yes. know, not get it too intense or, or you've turned into a different kind of intervention. But um you know, they, they have a right to say, you know, don't have cousin so-and-so speak at my funeral. He'll never shut up or he'll tell the story about so-and-so. So it's a good direction, you know, is um, that how, where is the part about your funeral? Which one is, I can't remember. If it's no, I,
0: I have to look at the book because uh, the last it's one is, difficult. what do I want my loved ones to know? Yeah. Um, but I imagine... It would be under the, how do I want people to treat me? I
1: think so. That's what I'm remembering. But that's an important thing to mention for us right now. Because um, deciding how you want to be remembered. Okay. okay? From some words. I mean, think about that yourself today, maybe to your listeners. Um, How do I want to be remembered? What kind of words do I want people to use to describe me, you know. Um, also, how do I imagine my service to be? Do I want no service? Do I want a bunch of people to gather around a dinner table and tell stories about me, or do I want a, a beautiful service with classical music and flowers all over a glass chapel? You know, um, it and it changes. So if you go to one and they have an altar call or something, you can go quickly back to your advance directives and say, in my service, no altar call. Well, And I do Um,
0: think that this is under my wish for how I want my loved ones to, what do I want my loved ones to know? To know. Yeah.
1: That's where it is. That is
0: the last wish, but, and that makes sense that that's the last.
1: I was thinking of one of the things in what I want my loved ones to know that I think is important. It says, I I think it's important that you get bereavement help. And, and a lot of people don't feel okay about therapy or they have ideas, different cultures. You know, it's in 28 languages. It's the document itself. And it isn't the same in every language because the culture's approach to death is different. But you want people to know if they need help, they should get it. They shouldn't be embarrassed about getting it. There's a couple of things in there about forgiveness. You know, Um, do you you want to, uh, anything you you want to ask for for forgiveness for or give forgiveness to? (laughs) You know, it's not worded exactly like that, but like I said before, you write in the document, right? So if there are things on your mind you can put them down there even if it's not possible to resolve everything, you know, before you die. And some of them, you know, if you don't like the question, it doesn't appeal to you, cross it out. You know, there's lots of things in there that maybe don't ring your chimes, you know, just cross them out, say N-A. But I'm pretty much guessing that for most people, you're gonna find something in there that seems important to you.
0: So the more you talk about this document, the more heartwarming it sounds and feels. Um, what all went into the development of this? Did you have people who were facing the the end of their life uh, contribute? Were mostly chaplains, uh, doctors, mm-hmm. lawyers? I, how what what was the team like that put this together? Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. what they did is they. Um, They got, I can't remember, six or seven healthcare systems who had been brought to their attention as being very committed to good death. I used to teach a class at at the medical school there at USC to residents, and it was called good death, bad death. You know, what we'd make a graph, what's a good death in your opinion? What's a bad death? You know, those kinds of of questions were especially being asked by physicians. I think it's 99 when he left Mother Teresa and started fundraising. And I got connected with them I think in 2002 or 2003 when I started as director of pastoral care at Long Beach Memorial. And they pulled us together. It would have been wonderful if we had Zoom then. We didn't, you know, it was before the days of Zoom. But people would share mostly in writing and phone calls kind of what they were doing. And then we'd be given some, you know, questions and things that we would respond to or ask and that was the beginning. Um, they had a you know paid staff there at Aging with Dignity that was working on it, and we were like the advisors. And I think that we had, so each ideation of the document would come to us for editing and, and input, and we would check it there in the hospital with people who were dying and family members of people who were dying, and send it back. So it did that kind of a thing. And then where we really got involved was marketing it because they picked, we had six hospitals in our hospital system. And um, so that meant it was my job to educate those 10,000 people, you know, and get as many of them as possible to do their advanced directive and to specifically educate the caregivers who would be teaching and using it. So social workers, case managers, um, nurses, especially in emergency room and ICU, docs, chaplains. And so we had trained the trainers so that they knew first they did theirs. I mean, that was the first thing, right? You know how hard it is to get a bunch of doctors to sit down and do their advanced directive. They don't wanna talk about death at all. That's so interesting. <laughs> you know, that they're not interested in people dying. They're interested in keeping them alive. Um, but that's kind of what we did is we took them in groups. And I even took some of those people who were going to train away on retreat and trained them on retreat so that we had time first for people to discuss their own feelings about death before we started putting something on paper and tell their story. You know, I, I believe that stories are, are just what bring us all together. And so if I worked with residents, I'd have them come to the grief group, sit in on every resident had as a requirement in their rotation to come to the grief group to write their advance directive and then to be, you know, then to do the video that I made, which was their final thing. But um, that became each one of us in our own healthcare systems devised ways to uh, develop people to train, and then begin to get the documents done. And we moved out into churches because it made sense to me and to the others that were clergy that that clergy, the people in that church, he knows them, and he'll probably be the first one to see that they've had an accident or they're sick. And so we just suggested just a confidential drawer with as many advanced directives of, of your personers as you could do. And then you knew who to call. You know, wow, you had the name and the address, really? backup name and address. And if they were taken to the emergency room, um, you, you had a copy of that document that you could journey with them. It sounds so obvious,
0: Karen, but I can see that that's probably something that never had been done. now that you say it, it makes so much sense because you're right, many people, that is the first uh, connection that they wanna make is is their their clergy. So um, you were talking about promoting this and getting this out. and And I do wanna tell you that about 10 years ago is when I first heard about this from my husband's physician. And I never heard it before, but he had a, a life-ending uh, disease, and and so it, it did get out to the doctors. That's the first way I heard about it. Yeah. Uh, but also, I believe there was some recognition by uh, the state of Florida.
1: So, could you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, it's some. Um, I I don't even remember the date of that, but they brought those six or seven of us from those different health systems back. Um, to be recognized, and I sat at the table with Jeb Bush and his wife, and um, you know it was a lovely thing. It, it was on an anniversary of the document. I don't remember how many years. Um, and bringing attention, you know, it was a PR event also to bring attention to the document. And in the course of that, the the seven of us or six of us were um, recognized for promoting it. And I really, I ended up working with Paul Malley, traveling and teaching seminars on it in places with, especially with um, caregivers who were going to be teaching. So we developed a a seminar that had the five wishes and then a cross cultural healthcare piece once all the different um, translations began to come out as to how you dealt with diversity in your place of work or worship. So as you
0: mentioned this, is this just in the United States or is this beyond?
1: No, it's beyond now. And I don't know how well it is beyond, but at the time, the last time I checked, there were 28 um, languages and each one of those was developed um, with cultural sensitivity. So it isn't just somebody, a linguist, you know, making a direct translation, because there are people who, um, for whom talking about death is a very, very, um, you know, they they don't want to do it, you know, it has to have a much softer, less inclusive approach.
0: We're coming up to the end of this, Karen. And I I just, I know, it goes so fast and I want to, you've done so much around the five wishes and so much in your life as you continue to do, but I'm really interested in why are you still such a great proponent and, and willing to put all your energy, especially at this exceptionally busy time in your life uh, to put your energy to share what, what continues to pull your heartstrings on
1: this. Maybe the years of being uh, in the intensive care unit and seeing Um, you know, we have more and more and more to offer in medicine now, (laughs) even than when I started, you know, you can do an awful lot of things. It doesn't mean you should do them, but they're there. And families come together often with lots of baggage and struggles at the end of somebody's life. And we've found that those families who had gone through the five wishes, or even if they hadn't gone through and we had it at the hospital and there it sat and we could go through it and and say what they wanted. It helped us uh, support that patient getting what they needed. And that family who has to go on, right? (laughs) They're not dead. They're not being buried. They have to get along with each other or try to. And, um, integrate that person and the love of that person into their life, hopefully in a positive way. And if they're all arguing and you know, that that's the memory that they have. And I think it's really important to do everything we can to make good memories.
0: Well, that is a beautiful reason to be involved in the five wishes. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank, and I've been talking to Reverend Karen Packard, a, uh, participant in the development of Five Wishes, and a real proponent of the Five Wishes, recent president of Hospice of the Foothills. I want to thank you so much, Karen, for coming on today. Uh, it just means an awful lot to, to hear your passion and all the information you had to share. You can oh, tune you're in.
1: Very, <laughs> you're welcome. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, just you're very welcome. I'd love to be with you. I, I think you're a wonderful interviewer, and the subject matter does is passionate for me.
0: Well thank you so much. You can tune in and listen to Embracing the Journey the 4th Tuesday of each month at 6:30 p.m. Thank you to our engineer Jeff Wright and to Jeff Wright for our theme music and podcast.